For the week of Wednesday, May 9th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, Initiative 1600, a ballot initiative put forth by the nonprofit group Whole Washington that would institute universal health care in the state of Washington. We talk with Erin Georgian. She is the Initiative Writing Committee Chair for Whole Washington about how universal coverage would work under 1600 and about one of the key areas of waste in the current system that might surprise you. Literally 80%, 70% of the overall savings and money that we get to save is paperwork. It's just money spent on paperwork. We will also have our weekly dose of good news. That's all coming up, so stay with us. So the United States has been trying to find a way to get all of its citizens covered by health care insurance for about a century now. The Obama administration managed to make the biggest strides at the federal level with the ACA, but moves at the state level seem to have had greater success, most notably with the implementation of what was known as Romney Care in Massachusetts in 2006. Here in Washington, during this year's 60-day legislative session, there were a few bills that put forth proposals for universal coverage, but none of them managed to make it out of committee. While there's a chance that that dynamic could change with a wider Democratic margin in 2019. A group called Whole Washington has introduced Initiative 1600, which is currently gathering signatures for the November ballot. And here to talk about it is Erin Georgian. Erin is the Initiative Writing Committee Chair for Whole Washington, and she joins us now. Hi, Erin. Hi, good morning. So, you know, this is going to get a little weedy, and because uh, <laughs> it's a complicated uh, matter, and I may ask some less than brilliant questions along the way, but I'm very confident that you can help us uh, break it down. Uh, so I want to talk about uh, what Initiative 1600 proposes. I want to talk about what it would cover. But let's start by talking about the need. Uh, so we know the big reasons. People have been bankrupted by medical costs from catastrophic illnesses uh, or they're denied coverage because of pre-existing conditions, which essentially amounts to the same thing. Uh, so talk about some of the other most pressing reasons for what whole Washington is proposing. First, I, I understand half a million Washingtonians currently don't have coverage, right? Yes, uh, half a million Washingtonians don't have coverage, and then a huge chunk, uh, even more than that, have inadequate coverage. So they don't have coverage for dental, vision, or hearing. They have exorbitant or unaffordable deductibles and copays, all of which, uh, in research done at the county level in our state, all of which shows a drop in healthcare usage um, and a struggling provider network. So it's kind of all related. How much do people spend uh, on health care here in the state every year? Um, well, it depends on where you get your health insurance. And that's one of the reasons, one of the things we, we're trying to set out to fix is that the current system is incredibly complicated. We're all paying too much, but in so many different systems that it's hard to say. Um, employees, on average, pay uh, $2,000 in, in deductibles, copays, and out-of-pocket costs every year. That's just their out-of-pocket costs and wow. deductibles. And that's an average. Some employers offer zero deductible plans. Some employers are offering like five, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000 deductible plans for families, um, the maximum, right? So it's hard to estimate exactly how much each individual people are paying. Um, the large majority of the cost falls on middle-class working families, though, um, and to a, a certain extent, elderly and disabled poor people because of some uh, Medicare um, 
discrepancies. Right. And I want to get into how your proposal would kind of mesh with Medicare. So we'll get into that in mm-hmm. a second. But um, just first, you cite a study by Dr. Gerald Friedman that shows that Initiative 1600 will save the state of Washington some $9 billion. So can you walk us through that briefly? Yeah. Well, the main savings is achieved by uh, modeling other countries' uh, systems that use universal health care. And that have a certain extent, to a certain extent, some private insurance in the mix, but it's not the dominant central system. Um, so where we get the bulk of that savings is on the paperwork for administrating healthcare. It's not uh, on the care itself. We get a little bit of extra bargaining power for drugs and a little bit of extra bargaining power for hospitals. But the bulk of the money being wasted right now is either on the private insurer side in admin costs, um, because they average about 15% in administrative costs, whereas Medicare and Medicaid average about 2%, 3%. So we looked at that savings on the health insurance side, the administration of, of reimbursements and stuff, but we also looked at providers. Providers are spending about a quarter of their time uh, billing and administration. Wow. And if you look at similar models to what we're proposing, which is a really strong, well-funded central mechanism that people who are wealthy might opt out of, yeah. you know, um, but they'll still be contributing financially to it. So those kinds of systems, what you end up with is that so essentially all healthcare, except for a small amount, is financed in a singular fashion. So it removes all the extra administrative burdens on providers. Providers right now have to juggle the potential coverage and reimbursement rates of over 156 different health insurance plans just from the marketplace. And then you add in Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, uh, federal employees, health benefits, and it's just too many insurance plans. Sure. So the other big half of that cost that's administration is actually saving providers that time. They will spend less time on administration and can provide more care. And I think there's an argument to be made as well that uh, the profit margin that exists within the insurance system itself doesn't even belong in healthcare. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, But the profit margin is a lot smaller than people think. Um, as comparison to the total amount of waste, uh, when you look at all the money there is to be saved by going to a nonprofit, more efficient system that focuses on paying for care instead of administration, everyone has has areas to gain. But like literally 80 percent, 70 percent of the overall savings and money that we get to save is 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 paperwork. Right. It's just money spent on paperwork. Um, and oddly enough, we need about the same amount of paperwork in the new system, but we will be providing about twice as much care because we'll be included. That will that will same amount of paperwork total, but it will cover that 500,000 extra people. It will cover all the extra care that people receive because they're not financially inhibited. Like we predict that more care will be used. So it's just more efficiently using the resources we have. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Well, so let's talk about how this ultimately works and how it's paid for. Um, 
So you based Initiative 1600 in part on uh, one of the bills that got stalled in committee. That was House Bill uh, 1026. And that got caught up specifically in how it was going to be funded. So that's a good place for us to start. How do we yes. solve that problem? Uh, because I think it's, it's a big one. First, start with talking about what this plan would cost the individual. Um, okay. So what it would cost the individual varies based on income. It is an equitable model. So we use three different tax structures um, to create a system in which higher earners are going to pay more than lower earners. Um, When we looked at what this kind of system does to overall spending, that the bulk of savings goes to the middle class. And the only uh, we're paying so much right now that the group that's predicted to pay more is in the top 5% of Washington earners, and it's particularly in the top 1%. So uh, telling people how much they will pay, it depends on where they're getting their income from, whether it's earned income or whether it's capital gains investment, because we tax those things in two different ways. Um, And it will depend on how much you Okay, so this gets into uh, this is going to be a dumb question. (laughs) I I warned you that those are going to be coming. But the state of Washington prohibits an income tax and so or a a state tax rather. So I'm wondering how this proposal uh, gets around that. Okay, well, it doesn't get around it. Um, So what I'll do for a moment is take advantage of this opportunity to give people the education they need to understand the conflict uh, and the debate. In you can Washington. educate me too at the same yeah, time. Yeah. So it's perfect. So what, where the conflict started was that um, our constitution has a provision that's called a uniformity clause. There are other states that have uniformity clauses as well. It only relates to property. It's specific to property. Now what that says is property taxes have to be uniform and can exempt a maximum of 15000 right? Now that's really regressive and that's really hard to work within. Um, And that's one of the challenges that we face. Well, in 1930s, a Supreme Court judge in Washington decided that income was property, gross income was property, and had to meet those qualifications. It's very unclear that a Supreme Court judge in Washington would rule that way today. And the reason for that is other states with the same clause have progressive income taxes because they don't classify income as property. It's an action. You do work and you trade it for income. Okay. Well, so then would you, if 1600 were to pass, would you expect a court challenge on it? Um, I do, primarily because we've been informed that that's how the opposition works. They will want the court to make a ruling because they have the opportunity to make a ruling. Um, But uh, we've had experts at the state level look at this, and we've done two different things to mitigate that. One is that um, we actually worked within that boundaries. We respected people's notion that property should be taxed in a uniform way. And so we created a progressive tax package that the gross income tax is 1% with an exemption of 15000 So we still call it an excise tax because that's what other states classify it as a separate kind of tax. And the courts may rule on that. It's If they rule that it's, no, it's an income tax based on this 1930s state level thing, then our tax is still within the boundaries. It also included a, a long-term capital gains tax. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. So you're with, and you call that an investment profit tax. Uh, it, it, it's 8.5% for the individual, uh-huh. but that only covers 
specific investment gains. It doesn't cover homes. Uh, It doesn't cover retirement accounts and things like that, right? Yeah, it 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 exempts virtually all things that aren't um, investment, commercial investment, and, and stocks and things like that. So if you uh, don't pay capital gains at the federal level now, you're probably not going to pay capital gains uh, under this this tax either. So it exempts, and then it also exempts a bunch of agricultural uh, related profits because we didn't want to add to the cost of residential. Uh, homes in any way, or the cost of um, agriculture and food. Okay. So, it, timber, you, you name it, we've it, it's exempt. It's really designed to. Um, Gerald Friedman talked about how this was really going to affect only the top earners uh, of in Washington, primarily, um, and that the bulk of people who make over fifteen thousand in long-term capital gains. Again, that's the threshold for taxing. Um, in Washington of this kind are earning over a hundred thousand dollars a year on average so they they are this is their income they don't right. make a gross income this is their income but I want to be clear about something the 8.5 percent capital gains tax is going to be levied whether or not that particular individual opts into this insurance yes. program. Okay. Yes, and in fact, both both the aggressive, adjusted gross income tax at one percent and the the long term capital gains are are not optional. Um, that is the contribution that residents will be making to ensure that they have a non profit um, expanded set of benefits that they can enroll into anytime for a with a significant cost protections. It will never cost more than. Um, $200 even for high earners, $200 a month per adult. It will be zero for those who are low income earners. So like other taxes that fund public health care systems like Medicaid, it's not an option for individuals to contribute in that way. Okay. Uh, there is an employer contribution also, and that is 8.5%. Yes. Um, yes. I'll just throw you a curveball here. Is there a figure available of how much employers currently pay uh, per employee on average? Yeah. Um, so on average, uh, the employers pay around 18% of an individual. So this would be significantly less on average. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. But it would spread the cost in a different way than it is now because employers often only uh, um, pay for insurance for the higher earners, the full time employees that are at least total are earning more income than part time employees. Right. And the way that this new tax system would work is it's eight and a half percent of payroll. There's a per employee exemption that uh, exempts under twelve thousand completely. It phases out between twelve thousand and sixty thousand, and then the highest earners would would not have an exempt amount. So those earning over sixty thousand a year would not have an amount of their payroll exempt. But the average effective tax rate for employers across the state would be less than 7%. And this it would include, I, I think you said, uh, part-time employees as well as full-time yes. employees. Okay. Yes. So there is a bit of a mandate in this, in this proposal. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. Employers will have to provide coverage. Even during transition, they'll have to provide coverage for all of their employees. If they do not then they can opt, uh, uh, opt, in other words, they'll be enrolled, they'll have to pay the payroll assessment. They'll have to opt out because they already offer coverage. And the reason that we included that is because it, 
You know, a lot of employers pride themselves on offering really, really good coverage. And initially, while this program is being set up, there may be provider areas where the negotiations haven't expanded, or there may be reasons why they don't want to completely change coverage. So there is the ability for an employer to opt out if they have a better plan elsewhere, in other words. Yes, during the transition. Once uh, the transition is, is done through elective enrollment. So even if the employer opts out, you can, as an employee, opt in. So we made this transition in which employers aren't forced to pay the payroll assessment if they're already providing coverage. If they're not providing coverage, for example, for their part-time employees, they'll have uh, an exemption which is going to make it very easy and financially affordable to cover those employees, right? Okay. A small contribution. And employees that are offered coverage, if that, that's not going to do it for them, if that's not enough, there's a way for them to opt in. Once 51% of all the residents in the state are enrolled in a state-managed plan, the payroll assessment will no longer be optional. Um, and there's a, there's a possibility that ERISA businesses may still be able to opt out. Uh, what kind of businesses? Um, businesses that offer ERISA benefits, which is the Employees Retired Income Security Act of 1974. Okay. Um, and it's a special challenge, but... It's not a huge challenge because the majority of businesses will opt in. <laughs> I'm very confident of that when they look at the difference in cost and the coverage that their employees are getting. I think that most of them will opt in. And we don't, we didn't design, uh, do our study based on systems that were 100% enrollment. In other words, we compared our projections and our system to similar systems um, so that we could get a real example. So we don't need 100% involvement. We need a majority involvement of the state residents to achieve the savings. Okay. And that actually gets into a couple of the arguments that I have heard against. And you're, you're kind of addressing this anyway, but one of the arguments, obviously, is that this is going to amount to the biggest uh, tax increase in state history. Mm -hmm. So take that one on first. Well, it it would be like it's hard to to talk around that because our states never tried to achieve funding something at this level. Healthcare is expensive. Um, it's more expensive the way we're doing it now, um, and it's really uh, not just right now uh, in the way that it costs people. It costs people their life savings. It costs people their their um, financial credit. It costs people their lives sometimes because they just don't go to the doctor. So. The costs it, right now are significantly higher. But yes, uh, when you decide to translate the costs of premiums and out-of-pockets and all of that into a single publicly funded system, it's a big number. It's $9 billion less than the number we're paying <laughs> now, but it's a big number. Um, what I have to say to that, though, is it will be the largest relief of costs paid by businesses and individuals in Washington that they have ever seen. This state has never experienced that amount of savings. At, 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 and the bulk of that savings is going to the 90% at the bottom, right? And the middle class is the biggest. So we will have an economic boom and a, an amount of people that have extra spending money, even though they're paying a, a higher amount in taxes. They're paying so much less out of their pocket. 
So you're already kind of addressing the other main argument that I have heard about this, but I want you to address it anyway. And that is that uh, people will ultimately turn to this kind of insurance during an economic downturn. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is precisely when the state would have less money in its coffers for something like this. So that's the other argument that I've heard. Right. Well, you have to think about how our system works because um, our plan, they would just contract for Medicaid benefits until the state rolls it in. Um, and it's unclear whether they, which direction they would seek first, but it wouldn't be terribly challenging for our state to roll in Medicaid. That'll be one of the easier waivers to achieve. It's just logistically, we leave waivers to the governor and the health care authority to seek. But then, so, of course, the follow up to that is there is already an attack on Medicare because the federal government is anticipating. And this is because of the tax cut that they just passed. They're anticipating less money for Medicare. So do, does your program anticipate the Medicaid and also Medicare at the federal level being consistent? Um. A little bit and no. We wrote in excess revenues. Um, In other words, once we found really uh, when we could guarantee the bulk of savings could go to all residents, we added, uh, we made, we left the excess revenues. It it was achieved in uh, 1.5 billion excess revenues. The idea of that is to allow it to accommodate um, for some changes. So it's a cushion. Yeah, yeah, it's a cushion. Another cushion um, that our study we predicted in our study that that we would be able to use a progressive premium for higher earners that started about $34 and ended at about $134. So the board can use up to $200 a month. So there is a little cushion there. And we wrote that in specifically. They're instructed to reduce the premiums as much as possible, but we wanted them to have, again, a really rapid, rapid action cushion for the, the trust if there's changes. The third provision is that if the, the trust runs a deficit then the legis- for two years in a row, the legislature has to propose additional funding mechanisms. Now, in theory... What would those be in your mind? I know. So this is in theory, when you get rid of um, programs, it's because they also cut taxes. So if our residents have experienced a federal tax reduction, it seems reasonable that our state could make an adjustment um, and and replace or replicate that that tax revenues at the state level. And the final and most important point I want to make where people use this as a criticism. What does our state do if we don't have $29 billion going into a public fund that we can use to offset these losses? Right. So the question really isn't, can we deal with it? Yeah, we can. It will be a challenge that we all must face together. But two, we're in a much scarier position right now. If those federal fundings cut and we have no safety net at the state level to make sure that our poorest and those who need it the most don't start having their benefits cut, what do we do then? Right? How do we solve that problem? Right. Plus, the system costs twice as much because we didn't fix the underlying administrative waste. So we're going to be in a much better situation to adapt and to respond to those concerns under a universal health care plan than we are now. 
Okay, so you have done incredible work uh, explaining all of that. It's it's enormously complicated, and and uh, my, my hat is off to you. And I'm always wearing a hat. So, um, so let's talk about the good stuff. So, what would the program cover? So, I know that it covers inpatient, outpatient, but there are a lot of other things that uh, it covers that I think a large, large number of people, as you said at the beginning, uh, don't currently have coverage for. Right? Yes. So it would cover all inpatient and outpatient needs for all primary care, um, rehabilitative care, hearing, audiology, dental. If if you have CHIP, if you have a child on CHIP, those are the benefits that we would apply essentially to everyone. Um, the one exception was long-term care benefits. Um, we Long-term care benefits is another big cost, and it was hard to predict exactly how much we would save through keeping people from needing long-term care benefits. So, okay, so then then this is actually a big asterisk then. So, so, so for long-term, if you, if you have, say, a long-term illness or something like that, what do those people do? So if you're under one of the, the state-funded long-term care benefits programs, so example, Medicaid or CHIP or things like that, um, you, it will have to be able to administrate those benefits. Okay, so it has to admit, uh, establish that benefits program. Um, the rest of the benefits, it's left up to, uh, it, it's, it's going to be added in 2025 once the initial costs of setting up the program have resolved. Because we also, we accounted for um, unemployment benefits for those who transition during the, the administration, uh, the, the setup process from administration in one place or to another field. So we accounted a couple billion for that. That's a temporary cost. Uh, we also accounted for some small business um, waivers to help uh, small businesses transition into it because they're not currently required to cover. And we didn't want to place any undue challenge on them to, to transition. Um, but just to be clear here, and I, I really want to underscore this, um, people because the place where people really, really hurt in this current system mm-hmm. is with catastrophic illness, um, long-term care, and being yeah. denied coverage for pre-existing conditions. Yes. So you can't be denied pre-existing conditions, and there, there wouldn't uh, the the price you you pay premium-wise would be a lot more predictable and uniform across the state. It would be a, a much lower amount. As for for the long-term care benefits, one of the things that we need to do to be able to add long-term care benefits as a state is relieve primary care costs. And so again, that's what this this proposal does is it sets our state off on a trajectory to relieve those costs. But this would happen over uh, time is what you're saying. Yeah, it happens over time. Now, on top of that, it pushes private insurers to start competing for supplemental benefits in a better way by relieving them of all the financial risk associated with chronic care and all of that stuff, hospital coverage and emergency services. When you relieve that of them, now they can compete at a much higher level that we can't even imagine the kind of options that are available in other places because we can't afford primary services. So, um, Again, the biggest issue was it was difficult to predict, and we didn't want that to be the hang-up that kept people from voting for this. So we added a delayed provision. It would it would um, evolve beyond Medicaid benefits over time. Okay. Well, then you're, you're kind of uh, getting into this right now, but let's talk about what happens if this does pass in November. Um, okay. What happens 
next? So you're talking about a long-term trajectory, but specifically, Mm -hmm. say, in 2019, what happens? Okay, so the first thing it would do, um, and it's not contingent on this, but it, the first thing it does is it, is it tells the legislature to, to come up with some startup funding. And that's the only time it really turns to the legislature for funding unless there's a deficit running in the system. Okay, so it does ask for startup funding. Um, can it do it without startup funding? Yes, yeah, sometimes government employees still work when there's no bills being paid. It just depends. Um, but the worst thing that would happen is that it would be delayed. But we would need everyone to help give it some startup funding. The good news is, is some of that funding might not need to be as high because the House uh, legislatures did succeed in getting a study funded. So they're already going to have a pretty good funding study in December that the board could use as their their primary. So they they have an idea of what's coming potentially. Yes. Yes. And I think that they really want to push it in the legislature if if this isn't successful. Like, I think we do have some people who are dedicated, just not enough people in the legislature. <laughs> well, we, that, that could change in 2019, depending on what happens with this year's election. So yeah. that's the first step is the legislature's asked to do funding. Now, um, beyond the startup costs, that first year is that the legislature would submit names, their, their proposed names for, for this committee uh, or for this board. It would have nine members, um, five of which would be chosen from lists presented by the two largest caucuses in both the House, the Senate, in our state, and the insurance commissioner. So they would put their list of of who they think should be on it up to the governor. The governor is going to appoint nine members, so four of his own and five from those lists, one from each. Now, that board, the first year, they focus on trying to qualify this uh, trust to administrate all the federal and state level funding programs, to contract with those, to contract with Medicaid, to contract with Medicare Advantage or uh, Medicare, to contract for the federal employees' benefits and so on and so forth. Well, they do that with the healthcare authority and stuff. That means that the entities still are in charge. They're still in charge of it, but you would be able to enroll into this trust as your administrator for that benefit. Okay. And six insurers are the primary ones who do that in our state right now, four of which are are for profit. So we plan on making sure that this better funded program is in the mix and it will guarantee that set of benefits. So that's their first year is to get ready, to get ready to make it available to everyone. Now, um, they need to be able to make it available for 2020 enrollment. So that actually starts in November. Uh, typically the open enrollment period. So by November is when they, you should be able to enroll on the marketplace. You should be able to enroll through Medicare. You should be able to enroll through Medicare Advantage. And you're talking 2019, November of 2019 in advance of the 2020 year. Okay. So that you can enroll for 2020 healthcare insurance. Okay. Well, and as you said, you're anticipating there will be some legal challenges along the way if this does pass. And so I guess we're going to have to see how that plays out. So let's talk about where you're at right now. Um, How many signatures? Ultimately, you need 300,000 signatures in order to get this under the ballot. Where are you right now? And what, what sort of help do you need? Uh, We need signature gathering volunteers. In particular, we need coordinators. So if you're um, uh, someone who wants to help a lot with signature gathering, but maybe you can't go out to all the events, 
um, one of the things you can do is volunteer to help us coordinate local volunteers in your area. And so your main job would be phone banking and emailing and contacting people and trying to build up people that are bringing petitions to you full and grabbing new ones to take out to events. Um, so that's one idea to volunteer, especially if you're nervous about doing actual signature gathering. We have a shortage of volunteer coordinators. Okay. And, and, and you, you've said that you're roughly around th- 30,000 signatures right now. We're over 30,000 and we're collecting so many each day now that it's hard for me to keep track. But every Wednesday, um, if you join our volunteers page, we do update there every Wednesday with where we are in our running count. Um, if you've gathered signatures and you are sitting on a petition, please mail them in or get them in so that we can count them. It helps people feel invigorated. That, that would be our main help right now is, is try to recruit organizations that might send volunteers to you. Try to help organize a local group for your neighborhood um, and find out how you can get a petition if you don't have one. And where should people go to learn more? Um, yes, on 1600.org is the best website. Um, under resources, we have literature and videos for people who want to learn a whole lot more about it. Um, I, I apologize. Some of them are really heady. Some of them get really deeply into policy. <laughs> and some of them are a little more uh, everyday person friendly. So you have to just kind of look through there and find the information you need. Pick if your poison. You right. Exactly. There's an FAQ section that you can find uh, the frequently asked questions and answers. And there's also a place where you can uh, request petitions to be sent to you. And even one is worth it. So if you can get 20 signatures on one petition in your in your community, order one. Well, as I said at the top, this is a very, very weedy subject. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for helping the listening audience and also helping me make sense of the healthcare situation in Washington and also uh, Initiative 1600. So Aaron Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. You too. And we will end this week on a dose of good news. And we will start in Arizona, where striking teachers there negotiated a settlement that resulted in a 20% pay raise for some, though not all, teachers in the state. Educators in Arizona are some of the worst paid in the nation, and this raise still doesn't even bring them up to what they were making before the cuts they endured in 2008. But it does set an example for teachers and for labor across the nation that collective action can get results, even in 2018. Here in Washington, specifically in Seattle, following an announcement by Mayor Jenny Durkin, Seattle City Attorney Pete Holmes officially moved to vacate misdemeanor marijuana possession convictions between 1996 and 2010. Holmes cited race as a factor in arrests and sentencing. Sounds like the city got the memo that it makes pretty much zero sense to have people with marks still on their record for something that is perfectly legal now. Maybe time to institute something like that at the state level. What else? Oh, on the gun safety front, the state of Hawaii joined four other states in banning bump stocks. Also, governors from seven states announced that they have launched a consortium that will study gun violence as a public health issue. And Kansas joined the state of Washington in making it illegal for people convicted of domestic abuse to own a firearm. Oh, and, and I don't know if you heard, if you're you know watching the news and all, but one Rudolph William Louis Giuliani managed to do more damage to Trump's legal strategy in two times television appearances over the course of one week than Robert Mueller has managed to do in months. 
we think. Mueller works in mysterious ways. But hey, Rudy, you, you keep up the good work, bud. And that'll do it for this week's Dose of Good News. And that'll also do it for this week's show. For more information about the show, head over to IndivisiblePodcast.org. And please do keep the emails coming. I love them. The email for the show is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter handle is at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guest, Aaron Georgian. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.